I would offer to our audience that when we are educating children of all races and when children of all races aren't given this racial literacy, I don't believe we're positioning them for success in 2020. I don't believe they are truly college and career ready in 2020. I believe that certainly addressing those historical inequities for our indigenous students and students of color needs to be job one all day, every day. And in my experience, while we're doing that, there's an importance in developing an understanding for white children of what it means to be white in a multiracial world. And I also don't see how we can fully educate appropriately white children absent that more critical lens on the world in which they live. Welcome to Raising Adults, the groundbreaking parenting podcast that starts with the end in mind. We're your co-hosts, Dina Thayer and Kira Dorian. We created future-focused parenting to take families from surviving to thriving. So join us as we help you stop raising kids and start raising adults. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Raising Adults podcast season four. We are so excited to have you with us today and just so thrilled to get to talk to our guest today. I am personally very excited to have this man on our show. Dina, how are you doing over there? I'm doing well, thank you. Glad to be back for some more. And I think today's topic is going to be extra important because of being in this this early part of the school year. I think it's going to be really helpful for parents because while the school year might look different for many of us, we still have an important responsibility uh, around what we're talking about today. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it and know I'm going to learn a lot as well. Yeah. So just listeners, just to give you a little bit of background of how we came to have this incredible gentleman on our show. Um, so I am a member of our PTA's Equity and Diversity Committee, and we decided to read a book called Courageous Conversations by Glenn Singleton. And it's a part of a bigger organization called Courageous Conversation. And the book blew my mind. And our district had read it, which is why we were reading it, was to align with our district to try and figure out how do we as a PTA you know, do more beyond our race-conscious parenting? How can we actually be a part of systemic change? And the book was so inspiring that I told Dina, I was like, we have to have them on our show. (laughs) And so we called and asked if somebody fabulous would be willing to come on the show. And indeed, he is fabulous. We have Luis Versailles on the show today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. And then he's going to talk with us about how do we go beyond the conversations that we're having in our home to actually have these conversations outside of our home and create that change at a bigger and more systemic level, which is so important. So let me tell you about this fabulous guy. He is a second-generation Afro-Cuban-American born and raised in Bloomington, Minnesota. He specializes in aligning district strategic plans to facilitate greater alignment in achieving racial equity system-wide. In addition, he leads a team of equity transformation specialists in guiding organizations through this work. He began his professional career as a teacher of Spanish and English as a second language. As an administrator, he worked as the program coordinator, assistant principal, and principal of Richfield Dual Language School. Luis was instrumental in the community outreach, feasibility study, and coordination required to bring the school into existence as the first suburban two-way immersion school in the history of the state of Minnesota. I mean, come on. Wow. Luis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kira and Dina. This is uh, quite the honor. I'm very excited. So thank you. Well, we're excited to have you. So, you know, we always start our show with our why. 
And so we would love to hear a little bit more about your personal story and how you came to this work, but also what your why is when it comes to the conversation that we're having today. Mm, I love that question. Well, I would say, you know, my personal lived experience, I think of being born to two Afro-Cuban immigrant parents who came to Minneapolis of all places from Havana, Cuba in the early 60s. And people always ask me the question kind of how did that happen? And the, the shortest version of the story I can tell you is on both my mother's side and my father's side, I have an uncle, one by blood on, on my father's side and one by marriage on my mother's side who were playing for the twins back in the early 60s. And so, you know, the universe conspired to bring together my mother and father who grew up 20 minutes from each other in Havana. And lo and behold, they meet in Minneapolis. And so, you know, I think my entire life, this question of race, this question of how race intersects with, you know, Latinx identity, the intersection of race, language, and culture, and bilingualism, and the process of acquiring a second language and how people of different races are perceived differently, in my experience, as they become bilingual or multilingual, has just always been a point of fascination uh, for me. And so I, I think, you know, that is very much how I enter this work as a learner. And I've come to accept that this will be my life's work, that it will never end, and that it's actually, I believe, really about an invitation to a deeper stand of humanity. And so to your question about my why, um, I do firmly believe that, you know, the notion of race and the history of systemic racism um, has had such a widespread and devastating impact on our ability to see our deepest humanity in ourselves, much less to see the humanity of another person. And so much of my why is really to support people in believing that we all can live a more powerful life through racial literacy. We all can live a more powerful life and touch a deeper part of our humanity by taking a stand for racial justice. And that's my why. Well said. I really love that. Let's talk a little bit about the organization as well before we launch into some other practical questions for you. So would you tell our listeners a little bit about Courageous Conversation and the work you do with them? Absolutely. So we are in our 28th year of existence. And for these 28 years, we have been steadfast in a belief that of all of the things impacting our children, our young people, our communities, uh, us on this call and your listeners, that systemic racism is in fact the most devastating and that there is a racial predictability to no matter where I am in the country, you know, having done this work now for nine years in about 35 states, it, it absolutely is racially predictable which communities are, are the most negatively impacted by systemic racism. And, and in my experience, those are our Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. And so our work is really to envision, you know, what does it look like to um, take this conversation about race that so many folks have been led to believe we can't have, you shouldn't have, you have to tiptoe around, and really flip that on its head and say, how do we all kind of raise the bar? And what does it look like for us to empower ourselves in the conversation about race? And what, what kind of a way of being in a conversation about race can we imagine 
that allows us each to authentically show up into that conversation. And that gives us some skills to stay in the conversation, particularly when our socialization kicks in and we are confronted with different beliefs and perspectives and many times triggered into either silence or debate. And what does it look like to really replace some of those behaviors with more of an inquiry stance and to deepen our consciousness and understanding of how each of us in the skin we are in, no matter who we are, has been socialized um, in a larger system of racial power and privilege? And what is each of our opportunities, and we would say responsibilities, to interrupt systemic racism in our personal, local, and immediate realms of influence. And so um, that has been our charge for the last 28 years. And the majority of those 28 years have been spent supporting school districts across the United States. In recent years, our work has found its way into higher education, into state education agencies, into municipal government, into technology, into advertising with uh, corporate clients uh, in healthcare, and is also operating now internationally as we um, have developed a courageous conversation, South Pacific Institute as well. So it uh, it has been quite the journey. Yeah, wow. And having a more and more far-reaching impact into new areas, it sounds like as well. And I really appreciate what you brought to bear there about when we're confronted with ideas or opinions that are different than our own, or even facts, right? Sometimes even facts are difficult for us. That mm. tendency to lean in and go toward debate and how transformative it can be when instead we lean into the curiosity. Kira and I mm. actually talk about this a lot, that the opportunity that there is for really kind and civil dialogue when we're willing to get curious instead of get firm and argumentative. So thank you for highlighting that too. That is so important, particularly to this conversation, but obviously has a more universal applicability too in, in just how we interact with anyone who might be different from us. Now, you know that uh, our audience is primarily parents, whether they're expectant parents yet to be parents or they're in that journey already. And so many of them are in the thick of dealing with the education system or have students in school. And I know there's there's some myth busting we need to do around that. So can you bust some of the myths around equity in schools? Maybe share with us some of the misconceptions people hold that that keep the education system inequitable? Mm. Wow, I love that question. <laughs> um, well, I would say some, Dina, of those misconceptions I've experienced many times when people hear kind of um, this call to take a stand for racial equity, that um, becomes synonymous with only the experience of people of color or only the experience of students of color and indigenous students. And what I would say is a misconception is this lack of a recognition that all of us as adults, as parents, as community members, and certainly all of our children and young people have a racial identity. And so part of our work is about really helping folks understand that and help, helping folks understand the significance of that. And, you know, this kind of harsh reality that it's very difficult for white children and white young people to develop a white racial identity that is healthy, um, where they are aware of the racial history of, you know, what does it mean to be white? And how does this idea of what it means to be white come about in our history? How was that created? Why was that created? And, you know, how does that history impact 
the experience of white people today as we do this work toward creating a more racially just society. So I would say that's one of the misconceptions that I've seen, that race is synonymous with people of color and that racial equity is synonymous with addressing you know, historical barriers to access and opportunity for students of color. Yes, it's that. And I would offer to our audience that when we are educating children of all races and when children of all races aren't given this racial literacy, I don't believe we're positioning them for success in 2020. I don't believe they are truly college and career ready in 2020. I believe that certainly addressing those historical inequities for our indigenous students and students of color needs to be job one all day, every day. And in my experience, while we're doing that, there's an importance in developing an understanding for white children of what it means to be white in a multiracial world. And I also don't see how we can fully educate appropriately white children absent that more critical lens on the world in which they live. So I would say that's one misconception that comes to mind. It's interesting because I remember in the book, there's a lot of beautiful personal narrative kind of woven through this book from different people, which is really cool to take, you know, what is quite intense material and personalize it in that way. And I remember somebody in the book was sharing that I believe it was like a white principal and a staff member made them feel like, you know, oh, yeah, racism, that's terrible. But that's sort of your problem to to fix, right? That it's like it's up to the oppressed people to fix the problem. Mm. <laughs> and I that really struck me because I think that is what we do as a culture, as we as white people go, oh, that is terrible. That's just awful. Like we need to fix that. But we don't recognize that as the people who, whether we ourselves obviously did not create the problem, we are a part of the problem. We have the responsibility to step up and fix the problem, yeah. not the people who've been suffering. <laughs> and so yeah. I think yeah. I think what you said is spot on. Like as we encourage our children to own their whiteness and to go, hey, part of being white is actually part of helping to solve this problem and stepping up to solve this problem. I think that's a, like a beautiful way of of explaining that. So thank you for sharing that. So Luis, can you talk a little bit about some hows? I know that, you know, within the framework of courageous conversation, there are four agreements to having a courageous conversation. What are they? How does a person help facilitate them? What does that look like? Maybe even both in the home and out of the home? Wow. Yes, absolutely. So the you know, part of our courageous conversation protocol is the, you know, the utilization of four agreements, as you mentioned, that create a kind of different space in the conversation. And and what I mean by creating a different space in the conversation is, you know, how do we intentionally create that space for honoring our own experience? And as we said earlier, really seeking to understand other people's lived experiences and staying in that place of curiosity. And so, the you know one of the four agreements is the idea of staying engaged and in our work that means having a, a deeper level of engagement on the conversation called about race and and that actually connects to another tool of ours called the compass that simply says for many of us there is a kind of initial way that we tend to show up when we're addressing issues of race and that can look like you know tending to show up more in an emotional place or in more of an intellectual place or in more of a moral compass place or in more of a place of wanting to act and wanting to do. And so those four different ways of being on race are all valid. 
And when we can get practiced in bringing our full self or in our language, getting centered and really getting in touch with all of those parts of ourselves that sometimes given our racial history, you know, have been suppressed. So I know for me growing up black and Latino in Minneapolis, when I was growing up, you know, it was feeling, it was race in my life was a visceral thing. And, you know, in the language of my family, while I was witnessing how race is playing out and sometimes seeing my parents go through painful experiences at work around race, you know, I, I remember them essentially saying to me, you know, Ay, chico, el problema de racismo nunca se va a acabar. Like it's, you know, the problem of racism isn't going anywhere. It was there in Cuba, it's here in the United States. And essentially I was left with, you know, you just kind of have to make your way. You have to find your way in this. And so, you know, working toward believing that race isn't something I just have to survive, but to your point around the how, that I actually can have agency around race and that I actually have a right to a racially equitable workplace, a racially equitable community, a racially equitable schooling process for my children. Uh, was a journey I had to go on. And and really in the intellectual part of my understanding of race, deepening my understanding of race as a system with predictable patterns and that people like me being Black, Latino, lighter complected are connected to a history and a system of race as well and get enticed to hold up this system in some predictable ways. So how do I kind of see the chess game coming and how do I orchestrate this chess game with the people I know to make the change I want to bring about. And so, you know, staying engaged is really about bringing that full self forward. And secondly, recognizing that when you address race in a society that so often communicates to us, you should not, or you're doing something wrong, there will be discomfort when, so you know, our language around this is experience discomfort and know that our growth on this journey of going to a deeper place of humanity, many times for me, you know, those most discomforting experiences were the most necessary experiences for me. And so I've come to see this discomfort as a kind of fuel that I need and a kind of development and a growth that I need to get honest about how I've been socialized and to imagine a different way of being. The third agreement is to speak our truth. And uh, the beauty of our process is, you know, folks don't need to uh, have studied uh, systemic racism in college or be race scholars or have a sociology degree to engage in this process. We're simply saying, when you speak from your lived racial experience, of what have you experienced in the skin you are in? And when you move this conversation from, you know, we ought to, and you just need to understand, and when are we going to get to, this is what I've experienced as a Black Latino male. And tell me, what has your experience been in the skin you're in as you have done this work of trying to raise your children in a more racially conscious way or trying to mobilize community at your school district? So really speaking our truth is, honoring that space. And, and the, the, the idea here is we can't understand systemic racism if we can't first see that each of us is living a, ra a lived racial experience each and every day, really each and every moment of each and every day. And we aren't always conscious of that, but we can always work toward increasing our consciousness of that reality. 
And along with speaking our truth is also the practice of accepting and expecting that truth is very much a a matter of experience and perspective. And so how do we sit in that gray area that two different things can be true for two different people and their liberational experiences at the same time without negating either person's experience? So very much a both and orientation versus an either or. And the fourth and final agreement is the idea that if we can come to this journey and expect and accept non-closure, if we can expect that many times we'll come away from this conversation with more questions and answers, but the more we engage consciously, we do get to a, a different place of understanding. And we do have more information. As Maya Angelou said, uh, when we know better, hopefully we do better. And if we can expect that kind of non-closure in the journey and see this as not an initiative or a moment in time with everything happening right now, but a commitment to our our deeper humanity for the rest of our lives, there is a different relationship that we will have with race. And if we can not only accept that, but expect the non-closure as well, real time, as I'm having a conversation with Dina or Kira, if I'm not coming to that conversation, listening for the nice, neat answer I need, but really sitting with the human being and, and listening to you all and holding space for you all the way that I would hope that you would hold space for me when it's my time to share, there is so much more that we can hear. And so as we live these four agreements, we, we tend to find that different space gets created because all four of them have actually been intentionally designed because they run up against the way that most people have been socialized to have the conversation. Oh, absolutely. I was writing them down. And on that note, I'm curious if you would be willing just to, in the the language of courageous conversation, give us the four agreements again, because like myself, I'm sure many of our listeners haven't had the opportunity yet that Kira has to read the book. And those are some really powerful takeaways because I think they do sound very different from how we maybe have normally navigated these conversations. So would you be willing just to list those again one more time, Luis? Absolutely. None of these, so there's no order to them. It's just the idea that we're trying to honor these four norms real time as we have a conversation about race. And I listed them as stay engaged, experience discomfort, speak your truth, and expect and accept non-closure. Thank you so much. Really powerful stuff. And I do think we're in a season where a lot of parents right now are, are coming to realize or maybe realizing in a new and more more powerful way the incredible opportunity they have to raise children to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, to be part of the change that is needed. So beyond being race conscious at home, beyond these kind of conversations with their children, how would you say parents can be part of more systemic change that's needed, maybe particularly when it comes to their local schools, for example? Yes, absolutely. Um, Well, one of the ways that we organize our work is really based around the idea that to address a systemic challenge like systemic racism or institutionalized racism in in the context of a school district, in our belief, in our experience, you need a systemic approach and a systemic response. And part of what signals to us a systemic response is, you know, if we look at the most powerful planning documents, leadership documents, strategic planning documents, school improvement planning documents. Where is A, there a stance on racial equity evidenced in those documents? And B, 
what intentional vehicles are created for in particular indigenous families and families of color to show up and to speak their truth, to inform and frankly critique the district's racial equity journey and or a particular school's racial equity journey. And also what kind of culture exists for white families uh, who are developing voice around racial equity to also become a part of this change process as well. And so we would look for, you know, ways that the system is actively seeking out those perspectives and centering those voices, particularly those voices of the folks that have intergenerationally been the least served by the district. And, you know, part of our study has shown that as we do this work, no matter how well-intentioned a given school district is, you know, the truth of the matter is we have always needed kind of those external voices and that external consciousness and expertise of families of color and indigenous families who we believe to be the most positioned to help us understand what is happening in the community as a whole when indigenous students and students of color feel their power, feel their voice, feel connected to their ancestry, feel proud to be who they are. And how does it change when we see those kinds of partnerships with our families and communities as instructive to our learning and teaching process in really helping us co-create between families and communities and educators and administrators, you know, what needs to be true in this school environment, what needs to be true in this classroom for those ways of being of the community to be evidenced in the classroom experience. And we call that culturally relevant learning and teaching. We're very intentional with the sequencing of putting learning before teaching, primarily based on what I just said, that too often uh, different years, different families, different students. In my experience as a principal or as a central office administrator, you know, we would receive our data and we would want to talk about it as if it were student achievement data. And as we went deeper into our equity journey, we came to confront ourselves with the reality that if different years, different families, different students, there's a, a racial predictability to which students receive the best and the least of our system, at some point we have to hold ourselves accountable and recognize that we are the constant and that these are indicative of our data of what is it that we have learned and what is it we have not yet learned about effectively serving indigenous students and students of color. So really recognizing that our adult learning needs to precede our ability for our students to have a different experience as it relates to learning and teaching. And so, you know, that general formula is something that we would um, coach systems around both at the district and school level. So it sounds like a way that parents can be a part of that is actually first and foremost encouraging their own learning and getting better educated about the systemic issues. And secondly, perhaps then getting involved in a way to support or encourage or advocate for the teachers also getting that education. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I, you know, like I said, when I was reading the book, the, you know, and I consider myself relatively informed and there was just so much I didn't know. And I think, I think there's a key piece here. And that is as white parents in particular, the absence of something is really hard to notice. So when you're not experiencing these things, it's really hard to to see them because you're not experiencing them. Your kids aren't experiencing them. And so 
it can be very shocking as a white parent to be like, that's happening on campus. I had no idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it's not you you have there's nothing tangible for you as a white parent to experience. Whereas the families of color, they have a tangible experience that that is very real. And so I think that's sometimes where the disconnect as parents happens is that, well, we didn't experience that. <laughs> that doesn't right. mean it wasn't experienced. Right. Right. And this goes back to what I was saying about recognizing we all have a racial experience. So in our work, we would invite white families to, you know, first sit with the question, what have I learned about what it means to be white? And what were my experiences as a student and as a white student in particular? And how did race show up in those experiences? So, you know, having kind of a shorthand relationship with a white teacher as a white student who has similar cultural references to you and has similar insight to you and similar lived experience is a racialized experience. And so as we start to see this, we start to see that we all have an experience. And certainly the the experience of people of color is the experience too often of marginalization. And so, you know, this becomes quite important because we know that as systems start to address these disparities in opportunity, there is this kind of predictable place that I've seen, you know, having done this work from coast to coast for nine years, there is this predictable place where specifically white families who are seeing gains for students of color in their district that might be accelerated or should be accelerated if we understand these to be the vestiges of an educational debt over time, when they don't see that same level of acceleration for white students as a whole in a school district, absent an understanding of how that system might already be calibrated to serve white students at the expense of students of color, there can be this kind of predictable place of, well, I can see how this work is really benefiting the kids of color and families of color in our school district, but what about me? What about mm -hmm. my child? And, and that is a predictable stance that white leaders for racial equity and white families and parents for racial equity, I believe, need to be prepared to make and prepared to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I we need to wrap up here in a second, but I have a question before we do. And that is, what is the impact on BIPOC kids if the parents don't get involved? If we don't do this, you know, what's the trajectory? Because I, we've talked a lot generally about, you know, things we can do and ways that these families are impacted. I'm curious about specifics. Like, what do you see specifically, like for, a, you know, an elementary black boy? What are what are the statistics showing for him? Just as an example, compared to my son, who is, you know, an elementary school white boy. The data is very stark. Yeah, the data is quite stark. And, you know, I, I think I believe I would I'm choosing to believe that hopefully there is something in our human condition that is awakening right now. I'm I'm recording this, you know, in Minneapolis minutes away from where George Floyd was murdered um a few short months ago. I'm recording this, you know, on in the wake of Jacob Blake's shooting <clears throat> and quite frankly still trying to process it and and make sense of it myself. You know, I am choosing to believe that we are at a place of recognizing that these disparities in experience are not sustainable. Um, they are not sustainable to our democracy. They're not sustainable to our planet, frankly. And so, you know, I, I would hope that we don't need any more data um, to indicate that the ways that our children of color have been marginalized, you know, sh should not be um, 
a place that we are accepting. And what I, I love about our young people right now is they have really lived a life where through technology, through social media, um, through seeing you know the experience of people of color represented at the highest level of our country's leadership for many of for much of their lives, they have this belief and they have this um, commitment to hold us responsible and hold us accountable to to doing our work. And you know the challenge becomes you know their belief that things should change doesn't mean they always have the consciousness. Uh, that that they need. And I believe that folks in my generation haven't done our work to really develop and hone that culture, that consciousness to the degree that they need. But I, I definitely would hope that at this point in time, the alarm, the alarm has sounded and that this uh, complacency around the current racial status quo is no longer the case. And so hopefully the, the process that I've laid out in this conversation is a way that folks can can really find their voice and break through their silence and do their work. Because, you know, our children and frankly, our planet, I believe, are screaming to us right now. So, Luis, anything else, any final takeaway you'd like for our listeners? You know, our podcast is called Raising Adults, and we're constantly wanting to think forward to who are these people we're trying to raise. And so our parents and listeners as they're seeking to do a faithful job to raise the next generation. Any any last takeaways or something? Hey, if you take one thing away from today, here's here's what we'd love to see you be doing. What can our parents do? Yeah, I love that question, Dina. I would say the big takeaway for me is it's never too early. I I know, you know, um, my wife Allie and I, my wife Allie being a, a white woman and me being Afro-Latino, you know, we're raising biracial children who are very strong in their racial identity. And, and um, to us, equity means, you know, in a society that otherizes identities of color and, and, and really centers the, the white identity, you know, our work has been really signaling to our children that they have a richness to be proud of. They have multiple identities that they ought to be proud of. And given our racial history and given our racial dynamics of how race works in our lives, we know that equitably raising them has meant really privileging their identity of color for a variety of reasons. And in that exercise, first with my daughter, Lucia, who is now 12, and then with her younger brother, Rio, who is now 10, you know, we found ourselves asking ourselves the question, are they ready for this conversation? Or do you think that we can share this with them? And invariably, when we have gone there, we have been really impressed with just how ready they are and how necessary this conversation is for them in their development. The research is pretty clear that by age two, absent racially conscious parenting, our children start to download racial hierarchies into their thinking. So we really can't start too early. I would just uh, encourage you all to uh, interrupt the desire to be the perfect person and to have this all figured out and have this be all nice and neat because that's not how race works in my experience. And, you know, I would also encourage us to consider that our children are always watching us. And the most powerful modeling we can provide to them is how we live a more racially conscious and a more racially just and a more racially inclusive life. So those are a few parting thoughts. 
I love that. Thank you so much. How can people find you, connect with you, or connect with the Courageous Conversation organization? Yes. So our, our website is CourageousConversation.com, um, and you will find information on there in terms of the various ways that we support the various sectors of our work to a very exciting uh, virtual Latinx summit coming up October 15th to the 17th that we're very excited about, a global summit that will be a virtual experience this year that folks will be hearing about. And um, I personally can be just uh, always emailed at luis at courageousconversation.com. So if in any way I can be of support to uh, any of your listeners in their equity journey, I would be honored to be of support. Oh, thank you so much. And listeners, I would encourage you to also read the book Courageous Conversations About Race by Glenn Singleton. It not only will blow your mind, but it it also helps give context to everything we talked about today because there's just so much that a lot of us don't know we don't know. And once we know, it's like, oh, all these other pieces make sense. So I would encourage listeners to read the book as well. Luis, thank you so much for being with us today and just sharing all of your knowledge. It's been fantastic. Thank you both. Thank you, Kira. Thank you, Dina. Oh, Kira, thank you so much for reaching out to him. That was incredible. I know. I know. And I I love I love that we're using our platform to talk about this because I think it's so important. And I meant what I said. I think it's really, really easy. I think I I was guilty of this for a long time of just being unaware of some of the systemic things mm-hmm. that once you're aware, once you know that you, your mind kind of pops open and you're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. If I had known that, I would have understood this and this and this. It's like little dominoes, you know, that that fall over once you crack something open. And so I just love that he was able to share what he was able to share today to, to maybe start some of that for some of our listeners or continue some of that for some of our listeners. Just amazing stuff. Is it okay with you if I share something that was really earth shattering for me in that conversation? Please, please. And and it's as a white person. So this was really interesting. But he actually said something that I've never heard in a conversation about race from a person of color. And early in the interview, he was talking about identity and getting curious and asking people, what's been your experience in the skin you're in? I loved that. But he also said something about the importance of, for the people who are working on this as white people, that there's a role there for developing a white identity and that we all interact with the world as the race we are. And I had just never heard that. And unfortunately, what I have heard was sort of this idea, and again, I'm not I'm not saying it's intentional or overt, but what's kind of come through for me often that's been really challenging is that in order to elevate people of color, in order to be anti-racist, in order to be an effective change maker in this process, I need to be ashamed that I'm white. Mm. And so that was just a really powerful moment for me to talk about developing an identity as a white person, I, I'd never, I'd never heard that before, and it actually was kind of emotional for me. Luckily, it wasn't my turn to talk because I was a little <laughs> bit, I was a little bit wispy. But it was just, oh. that was just really powerful, and I, and I think it's so important that. And he said one of one of those four agreements is we're going to experience some discomfort, and I think that's yeah. been really uncomfortable. And and yeah. and it, it it almost was like giving permission to oh, that it's okay to own who you are too. And you can still work toward these other things, but it doesn't have to mean this shame piece. Wow. Well, and 
Exactly. And what I love about that and how you link those together is that I think that what happens so often, and you know, this is discussed in lots of books like White Fragility comes to mind, but we feel that shame, we get very resistant. And because of our embarrassment or shame or whatever it is, and that discomfort that you talked about, I think that's where a lot of white people, you know, either don't believe experiences or deny them or get really defensive about like, well, I didn't mean it that way. And that doesn't further the conversation. So when you take that shame piece out and go, hey, look, this we're here. Here we are. This is your experience. This is your identity. This is my experience. This is my identity. Let's put those feelings to the side so that we don't have to feel defensive. We can just be curious and have a conversation. Yeah. And I think the other thing that happens with that is it, and I, I, I'm guessing, but this is what I would suspect is because it happens in other arenas of life, not just race. But then when we feel ashamed, we're very nervous about making the wrong move. And sometimes we get paralyzed into making no moves. And so I think you can easily set up a a situation where if white people feel ashamed of being white and now they're like, I'm nervous, I'm probably going to do the wrong thing. So I'll just do nothing. Yep. Yep. And, And how important it is that we get okay with making a mistake. And, and the discomfort that comes with making a mistake, right? Absolutely. And going, okay, I made a mistake. A friend of mine posted on Facebook yesterday, get comfortable saying, thank you for explaining that to me. <laughs> get comfortable with saying, oh, that's interesting. I'm so glad that I know that now, right? Instead of like, well, I didn't mean it that way. Or, you know, those those things that like you talk about or or doing nothing. That as people who are learning – And we say this to our kids all the time. You're going to make mistakes. You don't know. You're learning. And so we have to get okay with, wow, that was a big (laughs) boo-boo. But just like we say to our kids all the time, it's the mistake is not as important as how you handle it. So when you get caught in a mistake, when you've decided I'm going to be uncomfortable and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do something and I'm going to hope it's the right thing, that then if you find out it's the wrong thing, how you handle that is crucial. That's what says, I want to be an anti-racist. I want to learn. And even though that makes me uncomfortable because I didn't want to hurt you and that was not what I was trying to do, I can learn something here so I never repeat that. And that's just a a wonderful thing to model for our kids overall, but also specific to this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that courageous conversation as much as we did and um, that you will consider how you are going to go beyond just uh, race conscious parenting in your home, but how you might begin to have these conversations at the school and district level, how you can be a part of that. If your PTA does not have an equity and diversity committee, might I recommend that you start one? It has been a great pleasure to be working alongside the people that I'm working with at our school. Raising Adults is produced by Kira Dorian and Dina Thayer and recorded partially in my laundry room and partially in Dina's office and partially at Luis's house today. <laughs> Editing by Allison Preisinger. Music by Seattle band Hannah Lee. Thanks for listening. <laughs>